we have an exciting announcement from our sponsor, the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association. As of June 30th, Japanese shochu can be sold without a hard liquor license in New York State as long as it is 24 ABV or below. After over three years working with the state legislature and the IRS, and in cooperation with the Japanese Food and Restaurant Association among others, JSS is excited to announce this change in the law. To celebrate, JSS will be holding a tasting event in New York on the 3rd of November with shochu distilleries from Japan, and will be inviting members of the Japanese Restaurant Association, other restaurateurs, distributors, bar staff, influencers, and others. JSS will also be sponsoring a cocktail week and an authentic shochu and awamori month with Japanese restaurants in New York. Bolstered by this success, JSS is also looking to work with the California legislature to enact a similar change in the Golden State. Now, back to the show. The people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day, 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history of Welcome everyone. My name is John Gartner and thank you for tuning in this time and every time to Sake On Air, the first English podcast dedicated to the expansion of the dialogue surrounding sake, shochu, and awamori, usually brought to you from the offices of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association Information Center in the heart of Tokyo. But for this episode, due to a handful of extenuating circumstances, we are off-site. On-site or off-site, we could not do this without the generous support of the aforementioned Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association, for which we are very grateful. I will be your host this episode, and I'm joined by two others, Mr. Chris Hughes and Cindy Bissig. Chris, Cindy, how are you folks? I am pretty good. I mean, a little bit hot. I actually wish I was in Hokkaido. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, talking about it won't help you to physically cool down, but maybe it'll, it'll entice you to get there soon. Have you lived there or something? I, as you might know, I travel around Japan. So I try to spend about one or two months in Hokkaido every year. Wow, that's a good amount of time. That's a good amount of time. And Chris, how are you? I'm very well, thank you very much. I can agree with that sentiment about getting somewhere cooler. Uh, actually, I've never visited Hokkaido, but I have had a lot of uh, sake from the from Hokkaido. But can I just say, not sake related, when I think of Hokkaido, the first thing I think of, you know, I like to read a lot of mystery novels. Um, there are a lot of Japanese mystery novels which take place in Hokkaido, train journeys through this wintry landscape. And there's uh, our viewers, probably a lot of our viewers are familiar with or are fans of literature by uh, Murakami Haruki. And he actually wrote a book called Wild Sheep Chase, which is part of the Rap Trilogy, that actually takes you through the snowy north of Hokkaido. And I have a great memory of trying to learn Japanese while reading this, this book. And I, one thing I learned is that Hokkaido has a lot of sheep. So that's our first fact about Hokkaido for this podcast. <laughs> Well, now that Chris has thoroughly let the cat out of the bag, I'll just take one step backwards and say welcome to the next installment of our Regional Sake Experiences mini-series in which we cover the various sake-significant regions in Japan, with the aim being to provide our listeners with information about the regions, the sake, and or the shochu of that region, and suggestions on how to enjoy it all even more when you do eventually visit. And as you well know by now, in this episode, we'll be talking about the sake of Hokkaido. 
to jump in, to me, Hokkaido is one of the most interesting and most promising sake producing regions in Japan right now. Um, there's really a whole lot of activity taking place um, in and about and around the sake industry in Hokkaido. So let's talk about it. Uh, before we get into the sake and the things related and what to do up there, um, when you get there uh, related to sake, let's talk about some basic regional knowledge. So Hokkaido is the northernmost of the four main islands of Japan. It's the second largest island in Japan after Honshu, which is the big main island. Um, Hokkaido is actually a prefecture in and unto itself. For example, if you look at Honshu, as big as it is, you've got about, I don't know, 34 prefectures or something on there. Um, but Hokkaido is its own prefecture. The only other one that's like that is Okinawa prefecture, which is a string of islands down pretty much <laughs> in, as far south as you can get in the tropics of Japan. Um, so Hokkaido is a big landmass and it's, its own prefecture in the northern part of Japan. It was actually annexed by Japan in 1869 which was one year after the Meiji Restoration. However, Japanese people were living on that island long before that, as were the indigenous Ainu people, and they both continue to coexist now. Um, it's a huge prefecture. Uh, that one prefecture alone is 22% of Japan's surface area. Uh, it's actually quite cold, um, but that kind of goes without saying. Uh, I grew up in a very cold region of the United States, Cleveland, Ohio, so that's nothing to me. <laughs> uh, not that I learned to like it, but it's probably uh, just about the same climate as a lot of Hokkaido might be. Uh, in the past, there was a whole lot of coal mining that took place in the Hokkaido region. Oh, that's kind of dried up for the most part. And there's long been a lot of military bases up there and military personnel who tend to drink a lot of sake. That's why that's significant. And those have not faded. There's still a big military presence up in that part of the country. There's also wonderful, wonderful skiing up there. And the sake on air hosts, we were all chatting just a couple of minutes ago, and nobody here today <laughs> skis uh, much at all. Uh, so we're not really hip on that. We don't know a whole lot about it. But apparently, there's very good skiing up there. Uh, and it seemed to be particularly popular uh, with Australian tourists who get up there quite a bit. The capital city of Hokkaido is Sapporo, which boasts a lot of things, including a world-famous ice festival. Um, and in fact, in Hokkaido, it's actually the only ordinance-designated city. Um, in order to be an ordinance-designated city, you've got to have a population of 500,000 or more. Um, and then the city gets divided up into wards. Uh, so what that means is Sapporo is the only decently large city um, in uh, the entire Hokkaido prefectures. Uh, and that's kind of interesting as well. So those, that's the basic geography of uh, Hokkaido. And now I want to talk a little bit more about the sake industry up there, which is really, really interesting to me. So right now, there are only 16 active breweries in Hokkaido. As big as the landmass is, there's only 16 active breweries. However, there's a company called Kawakami Taisetsu, a very well-funded, very active, great company that currently has three active sake breweries going. Um, and they're about to open their fourth brewery. Uh, within a few weeks, I believe. And when they do that, that will be the 17th sake brewery in Hokkaido. Furthermore, there is one more brewery that's going to be opening early next year, and that will be in the Chitose region, and that will be the 18th sake brewery in Hokkaido. So very soon, we'll have 18 active sake breweries in the Hokkaido region. Historically, they once had as many as 50 different breweries up there, as many as 50. Again, if you go back 50 years ago, most prefectures had countless more breweries than they do today. A lot of them very, very small. 
Um, but up in Hokkaido alone, now there's there's soon to be 17 or 18, right? There were 50 at one point in time. Furthermore, and this really surprised me, at one point in time, Hokkaido was the 10th largest sake producing region in Japan. To me, that was really startling that that much sake, would, not that they had that many breweries, but that that much sake was made up there. That was actually quite uh, surprising to me to learn. I'm not so sure about the scale of operation of all those 50 breweries, but the numbers on their own are quite impressive, especially that last one, how much they were making. Uh, a bit more about Kamikawa Taisetsu. So Kamikawa Taisetsu is a brewery, a company, a brewing company um, that was opened, I believe, in 2017. And the toji, the master brewer, Mr. Shinji Kawabata, worked at uh, a handful of breweries around Japan. And he was most recently brewing at a different brewery in Hokkaido. And there was an investor, and very clearly a, a well-funded investor. And this investor was able to purchase a brewing license from a brewery in Mie Prefecture that had gone under. And the point there is that basically the government of Japan is not giving out any new brewing licenses because the industry is contracting. So in order, with very few exceptions, in order to start a new brewery, you need to buy a license from a company that's gone pretty much under or might be dormant. And that's what happened. So they purchased a brewery license and started a brewery up in Hokkaido. And then they just continued expanding. Uh, and both the company owner and Mr. Kawabata are both very, very active, very proactive and very, very clever and very technically skilled. Um, so they're active in both business development and in sake brewing too. Uh, so again, Mr. Shinji Kawabata is the toji that oversees all three, soon to be four of the breweries, but it's really, really very representative of all the activity that's happening in the sake brewing industry in uh, Hokkaido. So, so John, I recently heard that, you know, that a brewery from Gifu Prefecture, uh, the brand, uh, to make the brand Michizakura, moved to Hokkaido. Um, I guess I guess perhaps this has got something to do with the climate changing in Hokkaido, but can you add any more details about what's going on here? Why have they yeah, decided to move up there? Uh, there were a number of things in, uh, that were related to that. Um, so Mr. Yamada, who was the owner Toji of the brewery when it was in Gifu, uh, you, you hear rumors and some things are verified and some things aren't, but apparently his brewery was getting old and, and, and a little bit rickety, uh, but he was offered a whole lot of support by the prefectural government in Hokkaido to actually move up there. So he completely moved up there. He moved up there, he started brewing. Now in truth, they're actually finishing the brewery and he hasn't actually brewed sake in Hokkaido yet. That's gonna start this coming season. Uh, but he did what he could. He may have borrowed a location or brewed it in Gifu and sent it up there, I'm not sure. Uh, however, uh, the, he did rebuild a whole new brewery and now he's making that sake, Michizakura, up in uh, Hokkaido prefecture. And again, he moved from Gifu prefecture for a handful of reasons, but he's a really, really interesting guy because he's also involved or was also involved. I don't think that he is anymore with the sake brewery in Mexico, where you had a really, really nah, well-to-do investor that wanted to make sake in Mexico. So they built a completely, what would you call it? Thermally isolated or climate controlled brewery and they brought in Mr. Yamada from Gifu Prefecture to brew the sake there. Through them, they brought in all of the rice and everything from Japan. Uh, and they made quite decent sake in this brewery in Mexico. Uh, I believe that Mr. Yamada taught them everything he could and then moved on back to his brewery. I think he went there for a couple of seasons. Uh, but now he's about to leave that whole thing in Gifu behind and move up to Hokkaido. Uh, and that's one of the current or soon to be 18 breweries that are active up there. Very, very interesting business development. 
I think they are brewing some sake already in Hokkaido because there was a collaboration between a brewery in Ibaraki Prefecture, which currently suffered a fire, um, uh, Yuki Shuzo. And uh, I think that the Toji from Yuki Shuzo actually recently went up there to brew a special sake together with- I knew um, they did a collaboration. I wasn't 100% sure if she, they're both women Toji too, right? That's right. If the, if the Toji from Eto Michizakura was actually physically brewing in Hokkaido. And yes. If so, yes, she was. did they borrow another brewery to do it? I'm not so sure. I think it was this, this new brewery that- Oh, is that um, right? I didn't think it was ready. I, th I think so. Um, and I know that they made the sake with Kitashizuku rice, which is a which is Hokkaido um, native rice, uh, Shuzoko Tekimai, I think. It is, um, it is. Yeah, we'll get a new one. A relatively new one, right, as well. It is, um, yes. It is actually the most recent sake rice up there, uh, at least my understanding. Yeah. So that's the background in the 17, soon to be 18 breweries that are currently active in Hokkaido. Interestingly, if you look at almost any region in Japan, you could talk about sake the way it was 100 years ago or 200 years ago, and you could talk about a traditional or historical style to the sake of each region based on a number of things, including the climate, including the probably closest toji guild, uh, including the rice that grew there historically, including the local food. In other words, if they were down by the seaside or by big roads or, or up in the mountains, the food would change, so the sake would change. And all these things would affect the historical traditional style but there is no original style to Hokkaido because Hokkaido wasn't part of Japan until 1868 so sake wasn't there because there were no Japanese people there until about then but currently most of the sake from that region is basically light and dry due in part to the climate in other words you've got very very cold winters and you've got cooler springs and summers and so they would ferment at colder temperatures and they would then age at colder temperatures. And much like a lager versus an ale, you're going to get cleaner, crisper flavor profiles up there. So part of it is due to the climate as well. However, I have a friend who used to work for a brewery in Hokkaido for many, many years. Um, and part of his theory was that there's so many military people up there that drink a lot of sake. And it's really, really butt cold up there. So a lot of these military people that drink a lot and are cold, like to drink clean uh, sake that's very easy to drink when you warm it. Uh, and that had a lot to do with determining the style of the region as well, in this particular gentleman's uh, opinion. Uh, so that's what's behind the style of sake that's up there. No historical uh, basis to it, but basically light and dry right now. I want to talk next about rice. We talked about rice a little bit, but next I want to talk about the rice of Hokkaido, the sake rice uh, of Hokkaido. And I have a friend that worked at a sake brewery in Hokkaido for many years. And he told me that one time when he was in the storeroom of this particular brewery, he found a very old brochure advertising their own brewery on the floor. And he picked it up. He's like, oh, how interesting, a very, very old brochure. And in that brochure, he read that the company, well, he read the company was, had written in that brochure, the company was boasting, not stating, but boasting that all of the rice that they used was from the main island of Japan and that none of the rice from was Hokkaido. They were bragging about that in their own company brochure. Why? Because back then, Hokkaido rice had a very, very bad reputation. Uh, it just wasn't good for eating or for brewing sake. Um, however, a combination of agricultural, technology, and unfortunately, though it may be climate change, has made Hokkaido rice quite appealing 
quite tasty, quite reasonably priced, and much, much better than it was 40 or 50 years ago. So the whole rice scene has changed from the time my friend found that brochure and from the time that that brochure referred to. Currently, there are three main sake rice varieties that have been developed and grown in Hokkaido, and they're all created in the last 20 years ago. The most widely grown, Ginpu, uh, tends to taste fairly uh, light uh, and yield quite clean sake. And Ginpu, by the way, is actually quite popular. It's quite established uh, the variety of rice, um, and it's well-known enough that it's being used by breweries all over Japan. Uh, and I believe it's now in the top 10 in terms of volume of sake rice growth. I'm sure that it's relatively inexpensive as well. Uh, and that probably helps as well. However, it, it's a very good sake rice as well. Next is a more recently developed rice called suise, which means comet, as in the comet that shoots across the night sky. Uh, it's very well-rounded and it leads a very gentle sweetness uh, that seems especially prominent uh, when compared to most of the dry sake uh, that's found in Hokkaido. And the third one is Kitashizuku. Uh, and I got to be honest, I haven't had much sake with Kitashizuku. It's, it's a recently developed sake rice. Um, and in my experience, when a new sake rice is developed, it takes the brewers about a decade to get the hang of it, right? To really, really bring out the nature of that rice in a consistent way. For brewers to say, wow, the true goodness of this sake comes out of this rice comes out if we brew it this way. So it'll take a while, at least in my opinion, to see uh, what's behind it. But as I said, I haven't had much, so I don't know much about what the flavor profiles of sake made with Kitashizuku rice might be. How about you guys? Either of you guys have any experience with that? Yeah. Um, well, actually, at, at the, one of the one of fundraiser events for this uh, Yuki Shuzo, uh, because they do actually make a sake in their um, regular lineup made from Kitashizuku, I did actually get to taste that. And um, yeah, I, it kind of came in the middle of the flight. So you know, you know what it's like when you get a sake in the middle of a flight. <laughs> um, you remember the one at the end and you remember the one at the beginning, but not the one in the middle. But I have to say that I do have fond memories of the Kita Shizuku sake that I had. Uh, first of all, I would say that it was a really good match for the water in Ibaraki Prefecture, which is kind of not really related to our Gaido talk. But um, I do think this is a rice with a lot of potential. Um, and I'm excited to see what brewers do with this across the country, if it, it's, you know, cool. if, the, if they're allowed to use it in that way. So again, related to this rice thing, um, there's a brewer in Kyushu that I, and I'm sure he's not the only one, but he's deliberately buying rice from Hokkaido in order to develop the relationships with rice producers up there so that when things get hairy in a couple of decades as the globe warms more and more, he's already got an established relationship in history with rice producers up there. Um, and like it or not, as things get warmer, uh, it's probably going to be easier to grow good sake rice up there as well. And the one that's going to get first dibs are the people that have had a long, long relationship with the producers up there. So I, some, I know that some brewers are already looking to Hokkaido to be a more significant producer of good sake rice in the future. Uh, there's also a couple of widely grown table rices that are used in sake brewing too um, that are grown up there as well. Uh, and Hokkaido is an increasingly important rice producing region, which is something that just wasn't on the table uh, 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. So next, I'd like to move on to some suggestions for sake-related or sake-peripheral experiences. Things like breweries, museums, where do you go? Where do you drink? Where do you eat? Uh, and because I've only been to Hokkaido a handful of times and always with a purpose 
and an objective and a schedule that I had to keep to. I haven't had a whole lot of free time up there. However, Cindy, I think you've spent a significant amount of time up there. Can you enlighten us, um, sake-related or sake-peripheral experiences that we can enjoy in Hokkaido? I can try. <laughs> well, I think the problem with Hokkaido, first of all, is it's so big, right? I mean, you said it earlier on. Someone actually said it, or I read it recently in a book. It said that Hokkaido is about the size of Ireland. Like that's how big it is. And we're trying to figure out a few places to go to. It's just simply impossible, right? Like every time I go, I just cannot fit everything in. And every time I go as well, I find new places. And it's a curse and a blessing because you can keep going back and you can keep finding new stuff, but it's just never enough time. So I think what we're doing here, trying to give a few pointers to people to enjoy these regions better, hopefully helps them to have a little bit more fun when they do go and visit. So for me, I think my favorite places with sake and without is probably within Sapporo, Asahikawa and then Otaru. I think they're great places to um, explore and they both offer a lot of sake and they both offer a lot of other things to do. So sure, most people do get into Sapporo because that's with um, Chitose Airport, the easiest place to actually get in. And what I do love about it as well is they have the um, Nihon Seishu brand there. They have Chitose Tsuru Sake Museum, and it's an awesome place to go to. It's a beautiful place, about 50 minutes walk from Sapporo Tower. And they had an amazing showroom. They had a small cafe. They had a tasting bar. They had some video that you could watch some documentary about how sake is being made. And it was really amazing. And I think I was there last year. And then because of the pandemic, they were kind of closing the tasting bar. And it was already a little bit sadder. And I went back this year and they actually moved it to a different building. And it is now quite small. They still have the tasting, which they may or may not open, depending on how the pandemic is going to play out. I hope they're going to move back, to be honest, because I do really feel the experience you got from their previous location was really brilliant. And I would bring and send people up there and everybody was always quite happy about it. However, if it stays in the smaller um, building, it's still worth a visit because they have a lot of the limited sackets available. So things that you might not be able to buy anywhere else, you can get it there directly from the shops. So still worth it, but we have to wait and see what the development is. I'm not quite sure. Well, there's actually interesting news, but to give people 10 seconds of quick background, there's a company called Nippon Seishu, and they make a brand called Chitose Tsuru, and that's in the city of Chitose, which is in the northwestern part of Hokkaido. Is that correct, Cindy? Sounds all right. <laughs> well, it's going to have to be correct. Um, but interestingly, really, like last week, the news came out that Chitose Tsuru, or Nippon Seishu, is going to open a second brewery. Um, and it doesn't really count as another brewery in Hokkaido because it's on the same property. <laughs> it's just like, you know, 10 meters east of the current brewery. And I don't know if they need a separate license for that or not, but it's, it's, it's for some reason, they're not going to count it as another brewery. Um, but what you just spoke about might be related to the fact that they're opening another brewery and they had to move stuff around and maybe they'll move it back and maybe they won't. I just don't know. Uh, but that's another active development in the Hokkaido sake brewing industry. And it might be related to what you're saying. So, yeah, we just have to wait and see. I think some breweries are downsizing their their kind of their their tourism, uh, the tourism side of their business. You know, their museum or whatever. A lot of them are downsizing their museums, or because they aren't getting as many 
vistas as they were pre-pandemic. I'll just add that Chito Setsuru is one of the, the, I think the best sake I've had from Hokkaido. I had the Jinmai Daginjo. It's quite a, a high-priced Jinmai Daginjo. It comes in a lovely presentation box. Uh, I think it was made with Gimpu rice, but it might even be a special rice that they grow specifically for that product. Um, so for me as well, Chito Setsuru is on the map as far wow. as Hokkaido is concerned. I've actually not had Chito Setsuru sake. It is it's the great. largest brew in Hokkaido, I'm pretty sure, which means they have means and the technical skill to probably make extremely good daiginjo. Yeah. Uh, but I'll look for that. I'll look for that. I was going to ask you if they were the biggest, so that, that answers I'm, I'm that relatively question. sure. I'm quite certain they are. Yeah. Uh, Cindy, what else can you recommend? So, I mean, that's for kind of Sapporo City. And then, if, of course, because it's Sapporo and they have a very lively entertainment district, there is plenty of bars and there's plenty of restaurants. And they all serve a lot of, of great sake. I think for me, one of the places I do always go to when I visit and I always bring people to is, it's called Yatsa Sake Bar. It's a standing bar. And I know some people know it. It's a franchise, but it's not a very strict franchise. So it's basically the name and then the proprietor can kind of do his thing within his limitations, but he is really amazing. He really knows what he's doing. And it's one of the first stops I normally go to when I'm in Sapporo. What's it called and again, Cindy? It's called Yatta. Yatta. Like Y-A-T-A. And there's a few of them around. I think there's I one think in Tokyo. I think there might be one in Tokyo, yeah. And never there's been to one, the one in Tokyo, so. There's one in Shinbashi and San, Shinjuku Sanchome in Shibuya as well. Oh, it's quite a big, yeah, a franchise, definitely, right? Just people mm. take, taking it and running with it. Like an izakaya or a sake-focused pub or what? It's like a standing bar. So it's literally, there's there's a few seats on the counter and it's super hidden. I mean, if you don't know it's there, you will not find it. So it's kind of on the second floor in the very, very back <laughs> of, of the hallway. And it's pretty cool. And when you're in Hokkaido, I think there's a very interesting crowd who, who meets in these places. So it's definitely 30s up and you get anything from businessman and like I met the director of the local bank there one day and then he invited me to the bank to drink sake that he got from a brewery as a present. And it's a bit mad, but it's really a great place and people are really friendly and there's always a, a couple of chats to be had. So um, it's a good spot. And he does speak some English. So if you do not speak any Japanese, it's another bonus to, to kind of head over and say hello. But we also been talking about Kamikawa Taisetsu and I heard they had a showroom. In Sapporo, I do not know true, where yes. it is. So, they, I, I don't been. know what the address is, but uh, they've got a, a tasting room where there are several different kinds of sake with different rice varieties that they've used, and visitors can learn about Hokkaido and the history there, um, and get some uh, advice on pairings as well. So they do have uh, a tasting room um, in Sapporo. I'm not exactly sure the address, but if you look up Kamikawa Taisetsu in Sapporo, I'm sure you'll find it. Yeah, and they have everything on their homepage. So if you go to Kamikawa Taisetsu's homepage, they actually give you the locations of the, where you can buy the sake, where you can drink it. And I do not think they do brewery tours per se, but I guess if you if someone would ask very nicely <laughs> and has a very good reason to go, this might be on the cards. But yeah, with um, yeah. So so bear that in mind, folks. <laughs> you never know what you can run into. Um, <laughs> A couple more places that I would like to recommend in Sapporo. Um, there's a retail shop called Meishu no Yutaka. 
Um, and one of the directors there is a gentleman named Carlin Kumada. Uh, but he's not the only one that speaks very fluent English there. I know that for sure. Um, it's a very, very good retail shop I can highly recommend. So look up Meishu no Yutaka. The same company runs a bar called Bar Kumada in the biggest bar and restaurant area in Sapporo, which is called Suzuki-no. Um, they have English-speaking staff that are very, very well-educated in sake. So if you want to drink sake one evening in Sapporo, head to the Suzuki-no region and stop in Bar Kumada, and you will be taken very well care of. And I might just add one more thing to do in Sapporo. And we haven't talked about the snow festival, which is probably the biggest event that we have every year, end of January, first two weeks in February. And... Of course, it's all winter themes. It's about snow sculptures. It's about massive um, ice sculptures, very beautifully made. And there is a lot of great food as well as you're enjoying the festival. But what many people don't know, if you go to the very, very end of the festival where almost nothing happens, the sake breweries of Hokkaido normally have a tent there. <laughs> and you can drink all the sake from Hokkaido there. You can sample it. It's very cheap, 200 yen for a cup. You can talk to the people and it's probably the best kept secret. So if you happen to be in Sapporo for the snow festival, head to the end of the festival and find the sake tent for some, some very cool products and, and stuff to try. That's definitely very key insider advice. <laughs> Nobody knows, but it's the best place, to be honest. When um, would you both kind of say is the best time to visit Hokkaido, if you're going to visit? What are your respective recommendations with regards to timing? Well, I'm most interested in sake brewing, to be honest with you. So I would head up uh, in the colder months just to get around and see sake breweries. Um, I'm also kind of tolerant against the cold, and although I don't ski, I do love cold air and snow. So I would enjoy the winter myself. How cold does it get? in in the in the winter oh it gets really cold it does yeah. <laughs> i mean asahikawa which is pretty much in the in the middle of the island has the coldest recorded temperatures of any city in japan hmm. and there was something ridiculous like i don't know minus 30 or just something it's minus high. 40 degrees minus oh 40 that's how cold it is and that's the coldest temperature but every, a few times i went there you have minus 20 easily any, it, any recommendations, cool. how you should dress, how you should, anything you should prepare when you go visit Hokkaido? Well, don't wear your flip-flops. Um. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, I'd also add, it's not always that cold and it's not, you know, that cold everywhere up there. You know, hmm. in the middle of the winter, 20 years ago in Asahikawa, yeah. <laughs> Summer in Sapporo, maybe not, but still, yeah, uh, it's not going to be a balmy Kyoto, I'll tell you that much. And to be honest, I mean, if anybody was preparing to go, buy your shoes in Sapporo, like buy like the really wintry stuff there, because then you get actually stuff that works. Um, <laughs> I've seen right. people coming with, they bought expensive winter clothes and, and things, but then they were just expensive, but they weren't actually heat tech or they didn't really, you know what I mean? So you're like, no, no, it doesn't have to be fashionable, although it doesn't harm, but you do want stuff that actually keeps you uh, cozy. And then of course, what we know in Japan and all of the regions is those little hand pocket warmers or shoe pocket warmers that you just put into your pockets and everything. And um, yeah, they are Hokkaido, definitely right? lifesavers. Yeah. Hokkaido. Yeah, they sound like Hokkaido, don't they? they I've, always like Hokkaido, quite, Hokkaido, Hokkaido. I've always found that quite amusing. I know <laughs> it's too. just a coincidence. But, um, so if you buy them up there, they're Hokkaido, Hokkaido. 
All right, moving yeah. <laughs> and and if you can't get dog idol, actually, um, I've actually visited a few um, what we call antenna shops here in Tokyo. There's actually one close to where I live. It's only tiny. It's only small, though. Um, it's kind of like a farmer's market shop for Hokkaido. It's called the Hokkaido San Chokukan. Um, and it's actually located in Nezu, just a short walk from Nezu Station. Um, and then you have the Dosanko Plaza in Ginza, which is the biggest antenna store in Tokyo. And they have a lot of different um, delicacies from Hokkaido. And of course, a great sake selection as well. Those antenna shops can be great places to shop for sake from any region. So always take the opportunity to check them out. Yeah. Although there isn't one for every single prefecture in Japan, That's so true. be careful. <laughs> but they all seem to be, well, a lot of them seem to be gathered at Done, at Done, Yurakcho. In Ginza. Ne? I, yeah. I guess it's... Uh, I the guess Yurakcho it's the, drag, maybe, you might call yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> call it that. Kochi's got a great one. Okinawa's got a great one. There's a lot of good ones over there. So. Yeah, Niigata has got a good one as well now. Um, Shimani as well. The Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association has teamed up with the Association de la Sommelier Internationale, ASI, to expand awareness and understanding of sake and its many facets throughout the world. ASI has members in over 60 countries and provides a forum for sommelier exchange, educational programs, and competitions. The partnership will enable the establishment of a network of active sommeliers interested in sake and will provide opportunities to communicate sake's potential pairings beyond the framework of Japanese food. ASI's General Assembly was held in Nagoya in July of this year. In September, the ASI Boot Camp will be held in Malaysia, and in November, the ASI Best Sommelier Competition for Asia and Oceania will be held in Taiwan. The World Competition will be held in February of 2023 in Paris. In the future, JSS will continue to coordinate efforts with ASI by providing sake tastings and seminars at events organized by ASI. But maybe to head back to Hokkaido, because <laughs> um, there's a few other places that I really want to share with, with you guys and obviously with anybody who listens. And one of them is Otaru, which ha is home to Tanaka Chuzo. And I don't know if you had their sake yet. I think they have a very famous Takaragawa Chumai Daiginjo. And it's another one of these places that is so easily accessible, which we sometimes don't expect. And Otaru is great because it's about an hour drive or train drive or bus drive from Sapporo. And it's famous for its cut glass. So aside from the sake brewery, they actually have beautiful Kiriko glasses and they're all handmade and they can get ridiculously expensive. That's how you know that they're the real deal, but they're beautiful. And I think they're also great with the sake from Hokkaido. I think they really reflect um, well the style or their styles um, that we've been talking about. But back to Tanaka Brewery, it's about 20 minutes from Otaru, and it's an amazing sake brewery that you can visit. They have a big store with a tasting area, but then you can go upstairs and the showroom has actually been built on a, on a kind of level up sort of terrace that looks into the brewery. So you can walk around the tanks like one level up and you can see in the tanks and you see the Kurapito coming and going and brewing and doing their charts. Like I've been there for half an hour just watching them like stirring the Maromi and then I was trying to take a photo of how, what he puts into his charts to kind of <laughs> spy on him a little bit. But you can spend as much time as you want and you can also see into the Kochi room. So it's a really cool place to go to and it's free. 
So I thanked on my last trip and I was very happy with myself. <laughs> and Cindy, you say it's about 20 minutes outside of Otaru? You can walk in 20 minutes. Oh, well, 20 minute walk Otaru. outside of Otaru City. And there's another little um, secret tip because you can also get to Hokkaido with the ferry. So if you were to be in Niigata, you could take a night ferry to Otaru and arrive at like 7 a.m. in the morning. And on the way from the ferry to Otaru town is actually Tanaka Brewery. So this could be a nice little um, route, a little bit unexpected and different, but it's something that could be done if you had a little bit more time and you wanted to connect a couple of the the regions in a more unique way. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a really creative way to spend some time visiting sake breweries in two different mm -hmm. regions of the country. That's actually pretty yeah. cool. Get, get seasick and then cure that with a, with a <laughs> bit of uh, sake. And have you rode that ferry, Cindy, yourself? I have. How, yeah. how choppy was it on a scale of one to ten? You know what? I was being really fancy because it was during Corona and I didn't really want to be on the super cheap kind of just sleeping on the floor or just sitting on, the, on a seat kind of thing. So I got myself a cabin and I kind of slept like a baby and I woke up and I had sea legs for about a day though. I don't know why, but I just couldn't shake it off a little bit, but I didn't go to the brewery, which it might be the reason why I couldn't shake it off. So hmm. um, this is my improved itinerary. Go to the brewery after the ferry. <laughs> Bear that in mind. That's great. Yeah, and I mean, that's kind of it for Otaru. I think there is lots of izakayas, there's loads of restaurants, but lo most people just do it for a day trip. I, I think there's better places to eat in, in other areas, and you might come back to Sapporo and then enjoy your, your life there. I mean, Tsukino, as John said, is amazing. I mean, you can just go into any building and you can press every button on the elevator floor and you get off one floor and there is an amazing restaurant <laughs> waiting for you to, to be explored. So I, I wouldn't really stay in Otaru for the night. I, I would head back in, into town. Awesome. And Excellent. can I ask, as there is a Shinkansen now, which goes into Hokkaido, um, takes you to Hakodate, is that correct? Hakodate, yeah. yeah. Has anyone been to Hakodate? Can you visit any breweries? Around around Hakodate by going, you know, via the Shinkansen. I've taken the Shinkansen to Hakodate, but I haven't visited a brewery in Hakodate yet. Okay, so you perhaps have to get a bus or a, a taxi or, some, uh, or something from from Hakodate. Quite possibly. Yeah. I I think it's something I'd like to do because I've been there last year, but because everything was closed due to the pandemic, um, I kind of had to cross off a few of my stops. So. I pretty much straight went Hakodate and then went up to Sapporo. Cool. So before we talk about some of our favorite sake from Hokkaido, um, if you're interested, just use your favorite search engine and look for Hokkaido sake, H-O-K-K-A-I-D-O sake. And you'll find a site that's operated by the Hokkaido Sake and Shochu Makers Association, which is the local version of the uh, Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association that supports sake on air so thoroughly and so graciously. Uh, so you can learn a lot more there um, if you want to take the time to look at that. Uh, just to talk about a couple of the sake that we like and enjoy from Hokkaido. Um, again, Kamikawa Taisetsu is kind of new on the scene with three soon to be four breweries. Um, they tend to make some crisp 
very clean, somewhat modern and aromatic sake. Uh, although I haven't had something from all of the breweries, uh, so I can't I can't speak to that. There is a very well established Blue Blood Brewery uh, that makes a sake called Otokoyama, and they're in Asahikawa, uh, and they're of good st stable size uh, and very very enjoyable sake. It gets quite well distributed, and again. It's very clean. It's very standard. It's very enjoyable. It's very, very approachable uh, and quite widely well distributed as well. A couple of new ones on the scene that I like is a brewery making a sake called Niseko, uh, which I'm quite, uh, I find to be somewhat understated and a little bit gamey in a good way. Uh, but I enjoy that one uh, as well. Um, again, one more in Asahikawa makes a sake called Kokushimuso, uh, and they're quite enjoyable and approachable uh, as well. Uh, do either of you guys have any recommendations? So the one I was going to mention uh, is Kunimare Shuzo. I recently discovered them at an event in Tokyo. What a lovely couple. It's a very small brewery. I think it's just oh, a I've couple. I've never met them, but I've had their sake, but it is good, such, yeah. a, such a lovely couple. And they were like, you know, wanted to tell me all about the brewery. And I just tried their daiginjo and I was blown away. It was so, it wasn't like your regular kind of, you know, um, super fruity, um, super elegant daiginjo. It had a bit of um, a rustic kind of edge to it, which I really, really liked. Um, I believe I've had their honjozo. Yeah. Uh, and maybe the futsushu and not the daiginjo, but that seemed to be rustic to me as well. Yeah. Love, love them. I, I'm only small and I don't know if they do accept visitors, but um, yeah, fantastic. I'm not even sure, 100% sure where they are. I think they're quite far north. I think they're a bit out of the way. So it might be a little bit difficult to get to. Um, but anyway, please go out and see if you can find their sake because I really enjoyed it. Um, I probably, another thing that I would talk about when we talked about rice earlier, I believe that Hokkaido has a lot of different types of mochi rice, um, which is like the really glutinous type of rice. And I remember having a sake um, in, in a standing bar in Tokyo that was made with um, it was a four-stage fermentation, a yondanji komi, made with this um, mochi rice. Uh, and All of the rice was that mochi rice? It was 100% mochi rice, it said on the bottle, wow. yeah. And I believe that Hokkaido has a lot of different types of mochi rice. I even remember some of the names. I noted them down. Kitayuki mochi, uh, kaze no ko mochi, I think is how you pronounce it, and kitafuku mochi. I don't know how often they use to make sake, but I think using glutinous rice to make sake is something a bit of a trend which is happening in Hokkaido at the is moment. Is that right? Does that rice tend to dissolve more quickly and then give you more sweetness in the sake, do you know? I would think I would think so, yeah. And that lovely kind of like pillow-like softness that you ah, get as well. Interesting indeed. And just talking about trends in Hokkaido, I, I mean, generally I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they have succeeded in growing some Yamada Nishiki yeah, in Hokkaido. Yeah, but you know what? I just checked this ah. <laughs> for this podcast. So it isn't on the list. In other words, when you look at the, the report from the Ministry of Agriculture about where your mother was grown, it doesn't show up there. So what I think uh. is happening is they're growing it, but either it's not of high enough quality or there's not enough grown that they're willing to maintain an inspector for it up there, right? Uh, I see. So if it I doesn't see. get inspected, you can use it. You just can't make tokuteme shoshu out of it. That's right. Yeah, That's you can't what I call think it is happening. Jumayo, Jumayo, Daikinjo, whatever. So the point being, of course, that up until now, Hokkaido's climate was too cold for growing Yamada right. Nishiki. And now because of climate change, 
Right. And I think Hokkaido is recording less snow every year, right? Because of they're having less snow drifts because of climate change and the weather is really changing. And so in the future, it could really become a another, you know, not just Yamadanishki, but other rice varieties as well, yep. which prefer the warmer, the yeah. warmer climes. And it seems yeah. to me from what I've seen that Hokkaido is going to be very actively and very aggressively pursuing that line. I mean, they're just they're just very into what they're doing with their sake industry. So that would so be cool. do you think? Do you think we could see more migrations of breweries from, from the mainland to, to Hokkaido in the future? I'm sure there's a limit to how many they can handle, right? Uh, okay. Yeah. Because you're going to have competition. It's going to be tight up there. Uh, a couple more? Sure. I would say yes. Yeah. You yeah. know, 50 more? I would say no. Okay. So <laughs> they might grow a little bit. Back. They got to ship it back anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and actually, while we're on the topic of rice, I don't know if, can't remember if you mentioned it or not. Um, but gimpu rice is often used overseas to make sake as well, isn't it? It's one of the most popular imported. But grown overseas or exported? No, uh, imported from from Hokkaido to to other countries overseas to make to make sake. My, my exported, man. I know what you mean. Sent from yeah. Hokkaido to other countries. Sorry, exported from Japan. Yeah. Oh, I. Uh, that's actually ringing a bell in my mind, but I don't remember any at the concrete examples of it perhaps cool. in the early days perhaps they found alternatives now and they don't use it so often but i think in the early days because uh, i remember whenever i was researching sake brewing outside japan gimpu always came up as one of the the rice that they were using Is that right? i think because it's just so cheap to get hold of more than anything. <laughs> yeah as, as it grows in reputation that might change but that's cool yeah one final thing for me about Hokkaido, food related because we didn't talk so much about food I really love their soup curry. The soup curry, I, I think, is a thing in Hokkaido. It, it's the Hokkaido soul food. That's what they call it. Right. I love it. Like you, they, they, and it's getting quite popular in Tokyo. You can buy, you know, obviously you can buy like the packs and things. I often buy the packs and just make it at home. But there are a lot of soup curry restaurants now in Tokyo as well. There's one in Shibuya and, and the Dogenzaka drag, which is fantastic. And it's like a very spicy curry soup with chicken and vegetables and things in, and it goes fantastically with sake, I have to say. I'm, I'm drooling, but I, I've never had it. <laughs> it's one of the best things ever, but I think that's also something we haven't mentioned. It's a diverse food culture in Hokkaido, right? Because it's really famous for its seafood and for its snow crabs and, and all of that kind of things, but it's also very famous for its Genghis Khan, when we talk about mutton barbecue, and it has a really huge dairy industry. So cheese is a big topic in Hokkaido as well. So even for people who may not be as, like, or are as me and Chris are, not huge fish eaters, Hokkaido is actually a great place to go to and um, delve into some other culinary dishes that go really, really well with sake. As I prefaced at the beginning, they have a lot of sheep. <laughs> and I actually also wanted to add, and we talked a little bit about Michisakura, because I think they are one of the sake breweries that I am... Um, most interested these days and not necessarily their premium range but they have an r class which is their regular sake futsushu and it's absolutely delicious so if anybody gets a chance i think the label is it's yellow or it's orange so if you get a chance to drink that that's absolutely delicious um that's kind of my input on what you should be looking out for good recommendation good And yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess, I mean, we haven't really touched a lot on Asahikawa, um, but again, Hokkaido is just too big, right? It's hard yeah, it to, is. 
to really go into anything, but we did mention Takasago there for a little bit. And for anybody who wants to visit this, it's actually 50 minutes walk from the station. And aside from a shop and the restaurant, they have brewery tours that you can reserve online. They do two tours a, a day. You just have to let them know. And it's a great tour because they do walk you around the brewery. So you get to walk inside and the guys actually printed out signboards. So they're giving you like visuals. So if you're not um, fluent in Japanese, it's totally manageable. So it's a good one to visit. And then the second one that we also touched on a little bit, of course, Otokoyama. Um, short bus drive, I think 40 minutes. And what I'd like to add there is they have a massive sake festival every year. And it's absolutely wicked. Um, the second Sunday every February, they open the brewery up and the whole car park becomes like one big party. It's free flowing sake. You can try a lot of, of their products. And then they do these sort of skill shows. So they're doing very traditional like sake techniques or they're making a sake barrel from scratch and you can actually watch it. So it's a really good one to go to if you are in Hokkaido around that time. Excellent, excellent tips. Thank you very much. I want to hear about your skiing and snowboarding experiences there. And also, <laughs> I believe you dived into the sea, didn't you? I did, I did. Well, I feel Tell like we're going to run out a little bit on time here in a minute, but... Oh, it's yeah, fine, it's I... fine. I've, no, I, I think this is really interesting because this mm. is unusual with a big capital U. <laughs> well, I do love snowboarding. Um, I am Swiss, so Hokkaido is very close to my heart because it feels very, very similar to where I come from. And I have been snowboarding in different places. When you're in Sapporo, you can actually be in a snowboard uh, on a piece in one hour. Like that's how close like these kind of ski resorts are. But again, I mean, the most famous probably Niseko and Furano, but they are also extremely touristy. So it, it has to kind of also be your cup of tea. If you just want to go and spend time with other foreigners in a, in a place skiing and drinking, then sure, that's maybe your, your cup of tea. But you can also do it a bit more local and you can go up to Mount Asahidake for some, what's it called? Um, you ski in the back, it's all powder, it's really famous and um, slightly risky and dangerous. So I did try, but <laughs> it was probably the last time I did. Um, I was very scared <laughs> for my life. Um, <laughs> That's yeah, why I don't I, ski. <laughs> it's, it's great. I mean, it was great once we were back on, on the piece, but when we were outside, I was really a little bit afraid for my life and it took us wow. forever to get down the mountains. Yeah, they, they give you like this um, harness of like if an avalanche would come and you have like a little shovel, so you have to carry all this gear. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a big thing and people go there, especially for that, because it's so famous. Um, and where is this again? This is actually very close to Asahikawa. Is Mount Asaidake. Asaidake, hi. Mm. Um, yeah, but it was fun, but I know what you were <laughs> playing at. I, I'm really a fan of everything snow and ice. So what happens as well for a very short period of time in Hokkaido is there is drift ice. So if you're going to the northeast side of Hokkaido to um, Abahiri, Abashiri, sorry, um, you can go either on a drift ice boat that brings you into the drift ice and your boat literally goes through it and you feel like you're in the Antarctic, 
which is already quite spectacular. But if you go a little bit further, <laughs> if you're crazy enough to go further, you can actually go into the drift ice. So they give you a, a, a suit and you walk inside the drift ice and yeah, it's it, it's wow. pretty amazing. Yeah, I I really there, wanted to do it. And I was also then stuck for three days there because the roads were snowed in. <laughs> there, there is, there's a whole, the thing that, you know, alerted me to that there's a hilarious video uh, that Cindy took of one of the guides showing the participants how to put on this suit in this blizzard. And it's just, it's fantastic. It, it was interesting because I, I must say again, I was a bit afraid for my life. I think that was the, <laughs> that was the overall team of my, of my last Hokkaido trip. Let's do anything that's super risky, but we did actually go out and it was a mad snowstorms. And the day after all the airports were closed, you couldn't get in or out of Hokkaido. And especially where I was, um, yeah, we were stuck in for like three days, but we did still go inside the drift ice. And I was kind of thinking as he was trying to explain to us how this works, that maybe I'm not going to go in. <laughs> I, I will decide when I get there. So as he was explaining to us, his shoes flew off and it, it was it was a bit slapstick, but we all got dressed and we did go into the ice and it was one of the best experiences I had for a very long time. So it was it was totally worth it and I'm alive. So. Wow, that's the most important thing. Rewarded it with a glass of sake, of course. <laughs> it always helps, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, thank you, Cindy and Chris. That'll do it for this episode of Sake on Air. We hope you've enjoyed it and found it interesting and educational. Please take a moment to review and rate us on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you might be using to enjoy Sake on Air. Please feel free to send us any comments or questions to questions at sakeonair.com or at sakeonair via the usual suspects of social media, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can always find us there as well. Sake on Air is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association. And the show is a co-production effort between Export Japan and Padske Productions with audio production by Mr. Frank Walter. That will do it for this episode of the show. And until next time, stay healthy, stay well, and kampai. <laughs>